Let's now open our Bibles and read together from Ephesians chapter 4, the verses 17 to 32, which will be our text for this afternoon's sermon. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all in cleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or give place to the devil. Let him who stole or stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you find it easier to interact with people who are believers or unbelievers? One second. (laughs) If you were wrestling with an addiction or dealing with depression, would you be willing to talk with another member of our church about it? If you desired counseling because of a difficult relationship with a a friend or a family member, would you prefer to talk about things with an elder or someone outside of our church community? The unfortunate reality which exists is that many Christians are somewhat afraid of their fellow believers. They fear that if they reveal their weaknesses and struggles, they will be judged by others. They worry that what they reveal to one person might quickly spread throughout the church so that their private struggles become public knowledge. As a result, many believers do not seek help for their problems 
until things have reached a critical point. Now, beloved, this should not be the case. The church should be a place where people are able to talk openly with one another. It should be a community in which believers are supported by one another and built up together in the faith as they strive to live in righteousness and holiness. It should be a body in which kindness and compassion reign supreme because supreme kindness and compassion has been shown to it. In the first half of Ephesians 4, Paul stresses the need for unity among the believers. He urges them to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. However, achieving unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God is no simple matter. It requires diligence and commitment from believers. We shall learn more about this in Ephesians 4, the verses 17 to 32, under the following theme. Paul teaches us how to live together as God's new people. We'll see, first of all, that Christ's teaching must be recognized. Second, that old practices must be abandoned. And third, new motives must be embraced. Having previously talked about the need for unity in the body of Christ, Paul goes on to explain to the Ephesians what this means for their lives. In verse 17 he writes, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. Now, most of the Ephesian believers most likely had once been Gentiles. But now they had become part of God's holy people. And that meant that certain things had to change. When they had been Gentiles, they had acted like Gentiles, they had thought like Gentiles, but now they needed to act and think in a new way. Their former thoughts had been futile because they did not lead to eternal life. They had no lasting value or consequence. Paul warns that Those who do not believe are darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They're separated from the eternal life in God because their hearts do not want to accept the good news about what God has done. Paul spent two years in Ephesus holding daily discussions in the lecture hall of a man known as Tyrannus. And as a result, result, we read that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Yet even though those people heard the word of the Lord, many of them did not believe because they preferred to go on living as they always had. The Holy Spirit tells us that the hearts of the Gentiles were hard and unwilling to accept what God had done because being past feeling, they had given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Their constant desire to experience physical pleasures and delights pushed them to continually seek new ways of satisfying their desires. 
Inevitably, their efforts to satisfy their senses through honorable means were exhausted. And this led them to engage in behavior which was increasingly depraved. They made the pursuit of pleasure their highest goal. And it was destroying them, as it inevitably does for everyone who pursues pleasure without moderation or true wisdom. Believers, however, did not come to know Christ that way. They didn't learn about Christ through the pursuit of their own physical pleasures. Paul writes, You have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. The Ephesian believers came to know Christ and consequently have fellowship with God through things that were said and taught in the gospel. Jesus revealed how people could have true fellowship with God. Because of his sacrifice, Gentiles who had once been separated from the life of God could now come to have life through Christ. And it's the same for us. It is only because of Christ's sacrifice that we can come to have true eternal life with God. And it is through hearing about Jesus Christ and being taught about him, that we come to embrace a new way of life. Therefore, as believers, we should evaluate all things according to the standards put forward by Christ. We do not buy into the message that life is simply about the pursuit of happiness or success, because Christ makes it clear that our lives should be devoted to loving him, He should be our first love. Jesus warned, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We might add, whoever loves his girlfriend or boyfriend more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his friends or colleagues more than me is not worthy of me. We must be people who love our neighbors. But we must, first of all, strive to be people who love God. We're told, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now, for some of us, our former conduct or our former way of life may not seem all that different from our present way of life. But whether you have believed and have been a Christian from the first moments that you can recall, or came to faith much later on in your life, every one of us has to put off the old man, or the old self, the sinful nature. We all have to get rid of that mindset in which we blindly seek pleasure and earthly satisfaction. The old man, or nature, doesn't die at the moment of conversion or at our baptism, or our profession of faith. All believers still have to wrestle with the old man. When Paul tells the Ephesians to put off the old man, he is addressing people who already believe. They have abandoned the pagan religion of their parents and family members. They've renounced the worship of false gods that was going on all around them. And they've come to call upon Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But a portion of the old man is still there. 
Someone might have been baptized as an infant, raised in the Christian faith their whole life, but they were still born and conceived in sin. A portion of the old man is still within them. The old man is within all of us. But there is good news. Even though the old man still exists, he has been beaten. Paul reminds us in Romans 6, verse 6, that the old man was crucified with Christ. He writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And it is only because of the sacrifice which Jesus Christ was willing to undergo that the old self, the old man, can be put off. We are told that we need to be renewed in the spirits of our minds and put on the new man. We are to have a radically different perspective on life. Instead of simply living for ourselves, constantly searching for things which might make us happy, we are to be followers of Jesus Christ who are eager to serve one another. We are to embrace a whole new identity through the power of the Holy Spirit. An identity which is modeled after God himself. Putting on the new man means that we seek to imitate God's righteousness and holiness. Now, unfortunately, an aspect of our old self will always remain as long as we live. But by putting on the new self, the new man, we come to live lives in which righteousness and holy conduct is the norm, while selfish and sinful behavior is increasingly the exception. We may wonder, what exactly does this new man look like? What does it mean for a person to live in righteousness and holiness? How can a a mere human being imitate the righteousness and holiness of God? Well, our text goes on to start giving some very specific directions regarding how to throw off the old man and put on the new. Verse 25 begins, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. It may seem a little strange that honesty is the first thing which the apostle mentions in connection to the new man. But this isn't the only place where Paul stresses the importance of speaking truthfully to one another as part of putting on the new man. In Colossians chapter 3, Verse 9, he wrote to believers, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Honesty and truth are essential to the new self, because God himself always interacts with his people in honesty and truth. Whereas lies and deceit are always associated with the old self, in which we were enslaved to the devil who is called the father of lies. Believers should be able to discuss things openly and honestly. 
It can be tempting to hide our sins and our shortcomings from others, to pretend that we or our families have it all together when things are in fact a mess, to keep up a a sanitized public facade. But in doing so, we are not helping ourselves or our neighbors. When we hide our sins and weaknesses, we prevent others from helping us. And so we damage ourselves. But we also make it harder for others to be open about their own struggles because they're left with the false impression that they are the only ones who have to deal with these sorts of things. We all realize that it would be foolishness to hide an illness or a disease from a doctor or physician. But we are often quick to hide our sins from fellow believers who have been placed in our lives as a help and support in dealing with those sins. Of course, at times our motive for hiding our sins is that we do not truly desire help. Sometimes we rather enjoy things which we know are wrong. So we attempt to manage our sins. On the one hand, we recognize that we're doing something wrong, But on the other hand, we don't want to give it up. Perhaps we enjoy gossiping about others. And while we recognize that we shouldn't get carried away, we don't want to admit that we have a real problem. Perhaps we recognize that we have issues with lust, but we don't want to be held truly accountable by someone else so that we can still wallow in it from time to time. The Holy Spirit tells us Be angry and do not sin. It's a quotation from Psalm 4, verse 4. And here, Paul is not calling upon believers to be angry with one another, for he regularly rebukes such behavior. Instead, the point being made is that believers should be angry with sins in their own lives. And as a result, stop sinning. Verse 26 goes on. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Now to be more specific, the word angry refers to something which is the source of anger. The point is that if there is something in your life which leads you into sin, and you can get rid of it, do so immediately. Don't be content to put things off till another day. We are not to give the devil a place or opportunity in our lives. As long as he has opportunities, his influence can grow. And therefore, we must throw him out of our lives as completely as we can. We cannot devote part of our lives to God and another part of our lives for the works of the devil. Our goal isn't simply to put the new man on top of the old man so you can't really notice that there's still evil within our hearts. We need to throw out the old and bring in the new. And sometimes this may require drastic measures. We may need to stop going to certain places or certain events or only go in the company of people who can keep us accountable and this isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit and a desire to offer one's whole life as a living sacrifice 
to God. However, Paul wasn't afraid of demanding big changes in the lives of believers. He recognized that the Holy Spirit has the power to dramatically change our lives, our behaviors. For example, Paul writes, let him who steal no or whom who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Would it be easy to go from simply taking what you wanted to working by the sweat of your brow? Of course not. But the gospel contains a powerful message which demands change in our lives. Those who were once thieves are now expected to change their behavior completely. Some of the Ephesian believers did not appear to come from the most reputable of backgrounds. They might have had a very hard time understanding how they were now expected to live. But the gospel is capable of bringing change about in everyone. Thieves who didn't even want to work for their own benefit are now told to go and work for the benefit of fellow believers who are in need. It isn't enough that they simply stop stealing and work for a living. They need to have a completely different perspective on work and money and life. It isn't enough that they simply provide for themselves now that they are believers. They must be willing to serve others by their work. In a similar way, we are told, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. It's not enough to simply keep away from unwholesome talk. We must be willing to use even our conversation for the service of others. The word corrupt refers to something which is rotten or diseased. In the rest of the New Testament, it's always used to refer to trees or the fruit of trees which has gone bad. You might say we are being warned in particular against any kind of language or talk which would break down, which would bring rot into the church. Any language which might prevent the church from producing good fruits. Instead, in our midst, there should be talk which encourages the growth of the church and its members. Our conversation should be Delivered in such a way that it will build others up. We must talk in a way which is deliberately meant to benefit those who are listening. Now we must keep in mind, for example, that words which may inspire one person may crush another. Two believers who have a long history together may be able to speak to one another in a very blunt manner. On the other hand, We shouldn't be surprised if someone doesn't respond positively to being harshly admonished by someone who has never spoken a kind word to them in the past. We must always remember our words are supposed to benefit the person we are addressing. We aren't supposed to simply address one another so that we can feel better about ourselves 
So that we can say we have done our Christian duty in admonishing the sin in that person's life. We are all branches of the one vine, Jesus Christ. When we hurt other branches unnecessarily, we also hurt the vine who supports and nurtures all of us. We do not serve our Lord by attacking one another, but by building one another up. Even though we are saved on account of Christ's grace, this does not mean that our actions are unimportant. The Apostle writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here, Paul is referring back to statements he made in chapter 1, where he wrote, In him, namely Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We may be saved, but that does not guarantee that all our actions are pleasing to God. The fact that we were saved through the self-sacrificial love of Christ makes it all the more tragic when our actions and behaviors are selfish and unloving towards one another. The parents or caregivers in our midst may have experienced this sort of grief if they've ever seen two children that they love fighting with one another. The Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of all believers. And so it's understandable that he would grieve when his work in the heart of one person is frustrated by the actions of another believer. Now in order to ensure that such grief does not come about, we are told, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The list kind of builds as it goes along. Just like these emotions and actions can build on one another. After all, bitterness can often lead to wrath and anger. And wrath and anger, in turn, are usually the source of clamor and slander. Do we cherish our grievances and hold on to our bitterness until it turns to wrath? Or do we strive to forgive those who have wronged us? Do we pray that God would help us to live in peace with one another? The word clamor refers to shouting matches or heated arguments. Evil speaking includes all manner of abusive language. Both of these things can take place in the heat of the moment or in secret. Do we strive to avoid these things? Or are we busy stirring things up? Malice effectively refers to any kind of evil which we may wish to commit against another person, whether it be physical, mental, or otherwise. We're told to get rid of all of this. There's simply no room for such emotions and actions in our interactions with each other if we truly desire to put on the new man. Instead, we are commanded to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Being kind involves a willingness to serve others in a gentle manner. Being compassionate means that we seek to understand the pain and hurt which others have experienced or are experiencing. We are to be kind to our brothers and sisters even if they have hurt us by their words and actions. After all, we did not deserve to be forgiven for the sins which we have committed. But God saw fit to forgive us because of what Christ has done for us. And therefore, even if our fellow believers do not deserve to be forgiven, we are instructed to forgive them because of what Christ has done for us. Our Savior spoke emphatically on this matter elsewhere when he said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These words are a warning. But they are also a comfort. They remind us that when we forgive others, we may be assured that Christ reigns in us and is transforming us to resemble Him. In forgiving each other, we show that we are putting on the new man and imitating our God who has graciously forgiven us. Now, forgiveness does not mean that there's no hurt for the wrong that was done to us. It does not mean that there should never be consequences for actions. But forgiveness means that we will strive to love that person who has wronged us in a Christian manner. As believers who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to abandon the old man, the way of life that's being actively pursued by unbelievers. However, the new man which we are expected to put on doesn't merely have consequences for our own lives. The new man is self-sacrificial. It doesn't merely look after itself or its own wants or desires. It looks after the well-being of all believers. We are being transformed. Not only so that we may live with God in righteousness and holiness, but also so that we might live with each other in righteousness and holiness. God wants his church to be a body in which there is not only peace, but kindness and compassion as well. He has shown us kindness and compassion in abundance. Will we respond by showing the same to those he has placed in our lives? Amen.